Welcome to the Med Device Careers Podcast. I'm your host, Fran Moriarty. Med Device Careers is building a community shaping the future of healthcare. Each episode, I'll sit down with leaders and innovators in the med device space to discuss their career path, explore their contributions, and share their advice. Join us today at meddevicecareers.com to grow your knowledge, network, and career. In this episode, I speak with Beth Davenport and Amy Tucker of Sanger Heart and Vascular Institute in Charlotte, North Carolina, where Beth is the Clinical Director of Virtual Care and Cardiac Device Clinics, and where Amy serves as an Advanced Cardiac Device Nurse in their Cardiac Rhythm Device Clinic and Remote Monitoring Center. In this conversation, we speak about the success they've had at Sanger, developing a best-in-class remote monitoring program, the role of the AHP, and the future of collaboration between clinicians, hospital administration, and industry as it relates to patient care and data management. Please enjoy. Okay, great. Well, listen, I want to thank you both for being here. I'm really excited to talk about your experience at Sanger and get your perspective on sort of the the status of remote monitoring. But before we do that, why don't we start with um, just a little bit about your background and how you ended up sort of where you're at now. Uh, we could start with Amy and then, and then go to Beth. Okay. Well, I've actually been in our device clinic since 1994 and um, started doing remote monitoring in 2005 and sort of uh, we grew the program from infancy at that point, failing a lot, learning a lot. And uh, now I'm just exclusive dedicated to remote monitoring. So I started off in critical care nursing, um, worked in the cardiovascular recovery unit, uh, doing open heart surgeries, and then um, did cardiac rehab. And I actually went to work in IS for the hospital system. After a couple of years, I missed uh, the patient interaction, uh, was grateful for what I learned in hospital informatics. And interestingly enough, uh, this position was open um, in our um, device clinic at Sanger. And it, for me, it was a great marriage of technology and patient care. Once I got into it, I just have stayed. Again, it, it, for me, it's, it really is about patient care, but it allows you to be really engaged with technology that's quickly moving. Um, you mar- work with really smart people. And now I'm the, I've moved through becoming uh, a nurse manager for the department to now being the director of our um, virtual care center and over our device clinics. Um, Amy is now actually our clinical supervisor for remote monitoring because it has grown so much. Right. So, you know, I want to talk a little bit about that. Sort of since you initiated offering remote monitoring services, um, you know, we could talk sort of quantitatively, like how many patients you have now, how many staff. But I'd also be curious to hear sort of how you've seen it develop and change both as a product, right? Like maybe ways that it's improved, but then also as, you know, sort of an industry within itself. So when you started off in 2005, how many patients did you have? Wow. In 2005, um, probably about 3,500 maybe, about 3,500 patients. And at that point, I was the only nurse that was doing the remote monitoring. And I think in 2005, no, we had 525 billable remotes that whole year. Recently in 2020, we were up to 32,000 that we built. I think the most remarkable thing is when I started doing it, I was doing it by myself. And um, I realized that so much of that work was clerical. And as a clinician, I was working on all of that. 
So it grew our practice. We started hiring uh, outreach specialists to do the clerical aspects, which freed the clinician up to do what clinicians do and take care of the patients. And it just grew so rapidly. And we found out um, how many lives we were saving by early detection of, of potential problems with the devices. It is the standard of care. It's not something that we do now in addition to office right. visits. It is the standard of care. And um, we present remote monitoring as the standard of care and not as an option. And so our, our compliance is really high. We have almost all patients involved in remote monitoring. Um, and it's just from there, we've been able to take such better care of our patients. Yeah, remote monitoring for many years was something we sort of did on the side. So we continue to have full clinic days and remote monitoring, especially in the early days when we weren't getting a lot of alerts, we weren't necessarily getting data 24 seven and um, the majority of our patients weren't on remote monitoring. So if you think about it in healthcare, we're very slow moving. We have not been allowed to be slow moving when it comes to remote monitoring, especially if you look at the past year with COVID, right? So we went from about 55% of our encounters with patients being through remote monitoring to 98% in a matter of a few months. So it turned us on our head as far as our normal clinical workflows. The good part about um, what happened with us is a lot of the assumptions we made about how engaged patients would be with technology, we were wrong. They were much more engaged. They were willing to do virtual visits. They became very thankful that we could keep an eye on their device without them coming into the office. So I think it was a good turning point for us as far as instead of just talking about doing stuff, we really had to figure it out quickly, but we also had a lot of freedom to figure it out quickly. So in other words, there wasn't that focus of, okay, we have to make all, sure all these things are in place, then you can uh, do more virtual visits and then you can do, we had to figure it out. And so in a lot of ways, it was, it was good for us yeah. uh, to have to really start using a technology that's been there for years that we haven't been utilizing. Yeah, I think uh, you look at remote and it seems that like the, the technologically there are you know, some innovations and maybe some ways that whether it's data aggregation or it, it's been streamlined, but like, how did you guys manage to scale at the, the rate that you were able to do so? Did you recognize a need and then, and then sort of build sort of a, an infrastructure with personnel? Like, how, does, how did that work? There was a couple of processes that came together. Number one, we did two different Lean Sigma projects, which was really helpful to look at all the things that we had to get done, where we can make improvements in the workflow process, but it also involved time studies. So by understanding how much work a clinician or an outreach specialist can accomplish in a day, how much work has to be done to take care of a group of patients, we were able to develop a staffing model. So being able to do that proof of concept is really helpful when you're talking to administrators and explaining why you need more staff and how you came to that point. And what we're doing is um, revenue generating. So I think one of the important things for administrators to remember is that um, device management is most importantly about keeping patients safe. We should do it. When you put a device in, you're responsible for taking care of that device, optimizing the programming for the patient to help them live longer and higher quality life. It's also billable work. So these clinicians are really highly trained, but they also help generate revenue for your 
clinic. So again, that's how you develop staffing models. You have to have a lot of advocacy, right? So we were lucky in a sense that we had physicians that advocated for us. Uh, we had administrators that um, got it. And that's part of the reason we were able to grow to where we are today. So I've got about 20 clinicians. It's a mixture of cardiac device nurses, cardiac device specialists, and five or six outreach access specialists, which is our clerical folks. They're also really important for patient engagement because they're the ones that help troubleshoot the home monitoring. We have four companies. They have four different remote systems. They have various home monitors. It is a lot to learn and grasp, and um, home monitors quit working. You have changes with cellular towers that can affect it. Uh, there's a lot of layers to that work to keep patients connected. They're so instrumental in educating our patients. So some, they're the first line sometimes about why it's important to keep your monitor connected and not take it, you know, to take it out of the box and, and not unplug it. So they've been amazing. With remote monitoring, to your point earlier, it's, it's good for patients, right? Because it allows you to sort of, you know, stay on top of their device functionality and their rhythm in real time. It, it allows you to streamline workflow efficiencies, right? With coordinated, you know, remote monitoring transmissions and, and it allows you to sort of streamline the, uh, the work that needs to happen in clinic. It allows you to scale and to you know, generate additional revenue. So as a model, I think it's benefit both to the patient and to the, the, the provider. You know, what are some things that you, you find that are some headwinds for remote monitoring? It could be like difficulties implementing or are there any sort of systemic inefficiencies still that you guys are working through? Or you know, I'd be curious to hear like you know, how you see uh, ways to improve it, and then you know, maybe more importantly, you know, your perspective on what are some best practices for, for remote monitoring. I think a lot of what we've seen, um, like each one of our device clinicians has to have four screens, because to provide care to one patient uh, who's done a remote transmission, you're having to access our EMR, access the remote website, access our clinical documentation tool and access um, our billing and scheduling uh, platform. So software integration, um, having multiple platforms that don't talk to each other. Um, if you look at the remote monitoring websites themselves that each company developed, there's been very little change in the last 10 years. So this is an area where I think we're really crippled and it has to do with um, a lot of the software, the interface and the EMR. So um, this is where hopefully we're gonna see a lot of growth. Um, but that part is very crippling. It's a lot of steps, it's very time consuming and um, it can make it difficult to really make sure the patient's data gets to where it needs to get to and then stays there. Um, so the other pain point I think for most um, for most clinics um, across the U.S. at least is staffing. It's finding people, training them, and then retaining them. Uh, because it's in a clinic like ours where we, we do a great job training. We have a minimum of a six-month orientation. We look for people that have a good cardiovascular background and they learn four different companies they're very skilled. So then they become highly uh, recruitable by industry. <laughs> and, you know, so it can be really, it, it's a, there's a constant turnover there. Sure. 
And to really be good in this field, you need to do it consistently for at least four or five years. You don't become an expert at this in six months. We're hoping to make sure that you're safe in a year. So I think, again, trying to help people understand that these are not people that are just looking at a screen, looking at the data, writing a report. These are people that are looking at data that is connected to a patient to make sure that they're safe, the leads are okay, the battery is okay, are they having new onset atrial fib, are they having high rate episodes, is this a device under advisory, yes or no? If it is, what's the advisory about? Has it been mitigated? Do they need software? There's so many levels of critical thinking. Um, and what I'm seeing that's disturbing is this reduction of um, these staff to being called techs uh, pacer techs is one of my least favorite terms um, because we take care of patients with internal defibrillators, loop recorders. Um, there's a lot um, of information that comes through. You know, Amy, Amy does alerts every day and she may be called, she's, I don't know, you have lots of great stories. You've called 911, you've, for patients. I mean, she has saved people's lives through remote monitoring. It's definitely true. And um, one thing that we have to do too, so that we can get to these patients to, to help them and call 911 and recognize true meaningful alerts is to manage the data that's coming through. And that is another reason why um, Beth expects us to be um, experience before we start in remote monitoring. We have to be able to critically think and manage the alerts and manage the triggers and figure out what we want to be alerted to and what we don't need to be alerted to because it becomes noise. And especially in our clinic with almost 12,000 patients, um, we have to fine tune what comes in and, and what we're watching. And right. that comes with experienced staff. Your point about critical thinking skills, I think is really important because as somebody who was worked in the CRM field for a number of years, I think there is something to be said about the fact that your role is not merely programming or testing or facilitating you know, an implant perioperatively, right? You need to be able to not just know how things work when they are supposed to be working, but know what is wrong. And there's an infinite ways that things can be wrong, right? And to your point about that ultimately it's patient-centric, right? Your job is to be there to ensure that uh, device functionality is appropriate for the sake of the patient, right? So I do want to talk about how you think about best practices for remote monitoring in general, but I think a good maybe place to start with that is what's your perspective on the role of the AHP? To your earlier point about um, how critical it is to find, train, and retain staff, how do you build a, a pipeline or a pull from can a candidate pool that is going to allow you to do that? Is it just from industry, right? Are there alternative ways? You know, I think about some of the sort of outreach programs that PrepMD runs with college advisors. And I think a lot of that is to the earlier point we made about driving awareness of the space is that with education of these jobs and, and sort of what is required and what they entail, um, you have the ability to recruit in maybe a new way that hasn't been explored in the past. I know that's a lot to unpack, but. <laughs> <laughs> There's a difference for what we do in an ambulatory clinic because we are the provider. We don't have a physician in the room with us. Uh, we are the ones that are the front line for all the information. 
but there's also a clinical aspect to it of having to know how to schedule a patient, how to do the billing, uh, clinical documentation requirements. Uh, these are things that can also be really specific to an institution, right? Um, so the basics of pacing, the basics of what you're checking are the same, regardless of whether you're in industry or working in a clinic like ours. We have found that that mix of nurses and device um, technicians or specialists works the best. Uh, nurses that have a cardiovascular background is who I would normally, we would recruit because they have developed those critical thinking skills. They understand heart failure. They know the pharmacology. And what we find is that they do a great job with the cardiac device specialist who are maybe a, are a lot more trained on the technical aspects. And together they do a really good job of supporting each other in that patient care. And through osmosis almost, they learned a lot of that stuff from each other. But now one of the things that I think we have to realize is that with remote monitoring, I still think you need that le those different levels because there is, if you have somebody that really can read um, ECGs and things like that, and they can do, then they can do loop recorders and that kind of stuff. So I think now we have to learn how to play. It's not a, it's not a one person fits all, right? You have to find people who have different skill sets and then layer those. Um, because you're always going to need, like we have advanced cardiac device nurses. These are nurses that have the certification, they understand pharmacology, they can pick up a phone, call a patient who's clearly in heart failure, talk to them about their medications, um, give that information to the physician. That's high level triaging and patient management and they enjoy that part of it. Um, so as far as recruiting, I'm constantly recruiting. I've been in this position for over 11 years and I'm constantly recruiting. We've learned a lot over the years about how to really screen people for this job. I get people that think, oh, this is great. It's Monday through Friday. I got Christmas day off. Um, they think it's gonna be easy. They don't realize the amount of responsibility they have. Um, you're gonna know more than most of the physicians are gonna know about the device, how to program it, and they're dependent on us to tell them what's going on with the patient and what the problem is. So it, it can be difficult to screen for that, um, but we have, over the years, learned how to screen for it a little bit better, look for better um, fits for the team. But the number one thing you have to be able to do is be willing to learn constantly, because 10 years, if you're still in this field, you will be learning constantly. You will never know it all, you will never be perfect at it. You're gonna get stumped all the time. For some people, that's what keeps them in the field. They like that challenge of learning. And they, there's always a sense of accomplishment, I think with every year, that you don't necessarily get in another career. Because every year you're, I don't know, you're more seasoned, you learn more stuff, right? You build on everything that you know. Yeah. yeah this, this definitely is an industry where information and knowledge compounds on itself, right? Sure. So. Back in um, 1994, when I started working in our device clinic, rate response was new, and I'm aging myself here. <laughs> uh, you know, and to sit back and watch what has happened over the last 25 years has been amazing, and it's what, it has what, what's kept me here. Um, just all the advanced technology and learning something else, and now these heart failure diagnostics where we can prevent someone from being rehospitalized. Um, it's amazing. It's amazing and fun mm -hmm. technology.
Yeah, I think that speaks to just how durable uh, remote monitoring as a space is because it's, it's sort of keeping up and growing with innovation, right? And um, I think there is ways that you're seeing the ability and the sort of the reach that the technology of remote monitoring has evolved and, and even in the last you know, five years. It opens up whole new patient populations, which I think in turn reinforces sort of the process that you know, is, is, is implemented on the, on the remote side. And so we've got an understanding of um, people. What are some other ways uh, that you think that Sanger's found success in, in sort of um, developing a remote monitoring program? Is there anything else that you think you've learned or successes that you found that you think would be iterative, like for other clinics or you know, other um, you know, systems across the country? One thing that I know we've had is physician support. Um, they, they are responsive when we have come to them, letting them know what we need. We have a, a great amount of clinicians and uh, outreach specialists, but you know, we, wouldn't have, we wouldn't be where we are without Beth fighting for us and without our physicians backing her up. And I, I do think a lot of it is about education. So I think as far as best practice, um, it's educating your staff and it's educating the patient. Um, because one of the things that I feel like we have to remember about remote monitoring is we're really more connected to the patient than ever. Um, we're more connected to what's happening with them. Um, we've not done a great job really engaging patients in their own care, and I think that's the next frontier for us, is to really engage patients in their own care. When you look at things like diabetes management, patients are much more engaged with, what, with what's happening with them on a daily basis, and they, they are a lot more aware of it. Um, I think that heart failure is a great place to start with people really getting engaged with their own heart failure system and, un, uh, and understanding what, the, what their device is telling us about how they're doing with that. We've learned that we have to give it a solid six month orientation. We've learned how to, that it's critical for people to understand how to check a device in person to be able to move through that steps because if you take somebody and put them in remote monitoring, there's things that are on the device, readings that you get, like lead impedances and things like that. They're not always alerts, but if you've been checking devices, you know that if a patient is dependent, they've got a lead that's 10 years old, um, and the impedance has gone up or down by more than two or 300 ohms, we might have a problem. You're not gonna get an alert for it, but your brain needs to be able to process why that's important. Looking at, is the device really pacing correctly? You're not gonna get an alert necessarily for that, but you should be able to tell by looking at the presenting EGM if there's a problem, but you're not gonna get an alert for it. So what, what is concerning to me is this idea that we can take people that are not that well-trained. If they get an alert, they're gonna let a doctor know, but there's so much stuff that's not going to alert you that could potentially be life-threatening. You have to train people to understand accountability. They have to know all the devices. They have to understand how to troubleshoot a device in person, but that's the only way they're gonna be able to really troubleshoot it for remote monitoring. So what I'm very concerned about is the idea that we're just, remote monitoring is all we need to take care of patients, not true. The patients that are coming into the clinic most often are very complicated now. They need complex reprogramming. They have to be programmed for their um, alert parameters to be correct. 
And I feel like this is a whole group of people that we're just sort of pushing over to the side, like they're not going to matter, but they're going to have to be really highly trained. So yes, we will always take care of people through remote monitoring, but the ones we're going to bring in, we better have really good clinicians to take care of them. Right. That's a great point, because I think one sort of informs the other, where if you're able to streamline clinical practice with remote for uh, those patients, that would benefit more from that uh, than coming into the office. Mm -hmm. You almost in turn have to be ready for those patients who do come into the office that to your point, they may need extensive troubleshooting. So you almost create sort of a barbell effect where you know you have a lot of remotes that are mostly normal and then those in-person in visits are, you need to be highly skilled and highly trained to manage right. those. And it's, and it's a holistic approach. So, I mean, I think that's a great point about involving the patient. And so that's sort of like an external information sharing. How do you see the state of sort of internal information sharing amongst AHPs or clinicians? Talk to me a little bit about, you know, what's happening in San Diego. Amy and I don't just take care of patients by ourselves, right? So you have physicians, device clinicians, but you also have industry. Um, we all work together in our area. Uh, a lot of our industry partners have worked with us as long as we've been doing this. And we're all in it together to take care of the patient. They're with the doctor when they have the implant. Our reps uh, for the companies actually do a lot of patient education before they go home about their home monitor and how their device works. They also are help, helping us support these patients when they go to get MRIs, when they show up in the ER, right? So in the real world, we're all working together but at HRS, we've been very separated um, about some of the discussions. And so I think now we want to really engage industry, but we also want to engage administrators. We want to engage, there's so many tech companies that have figured things out um, with data management. And we, in this field, have a lot of data, but we're really struggling to manage it in meaningful ways. We know that AI makes sense. For, um, for helping with a lot of the data to improve patient care, to streamline it and make it, honestly, we need to make it less variable because depending on where you are in the country, you may not get the same care. You may not have access to the same level of expertise. And so that's something that AI and data management could really help level out and really improve patient care across a wide array. HRX is really about bringing all that together in a space that is immersive, that is um, inclusive, um, whether you're a small startup um, or a company that's been around for a long time, uh, to really help bring together the people that need the solutions and the people that have technology that we don't even know about. Like it's time for us to get out of our, our cocoon. Yeah. Or we're, or we're just gonna be talking about the same things for years. That's our hope for HRX is that we're really gonna set off um, the ability to bring in the people that can really help us do a better job of patient care. Yeah, I think that's exciting because you know, mm -hmm. you may have like these traditionally siloed either industries or technologies and then being able to sort of information share and look at ways that you can be uh, forward-thinking and innovative in, in sort of comprehensive solutions. I think now is a particularly sort of interesting inflection point with the way that remote monitoring is growing, the way that AI and, and, and technology is growing, diagnostics, right, preventative care. 
So I think it's really fertile ground. Um, so just to close, if, if you had any uh, advice for people who would be interested in entering the remote monitoring space or um, are interested in, in growing their career, what would that be? And um, what are some ways that they might sort of better prepare themselves for what is, um, I think, a challenging but engaging career? Mm -hmm. I think just giving yourself the opportunity to learn about it. I mean, we've had people come and uh, ask to just spend a couple of hours in clinic or to go to the remote monitoring center and spend time with a really experienced uh, remote monitoring uh, nurse. And I think that for a lot of people, what either makes or breaks them or, you know, turns them on to it or turns them off is when they realize that, yes, it's technology, but it's really a patient. It's patient care and um, that ability to really feel like, I mean, our clinicians make a difference in people's lives every single day, every single day, whether it's their heart failure management, they have new onset AFib, we're identifying it, we're getting them to the physician before they have a stroke. I mean, these are, these are critical things that we're doing. We're not just pushing along information. And so... I think that, again, and, and you have all these younger people, like we have a lot of younger people that have come onto our staff recently, and it's so great because they love it. Now, they're a lot more comfortable with technology than Amy and I were when this came along, and we've had to learn it, but they have a natural ability to get the technology. So to see them put that together with patient care, um, and you see them really feel fulfilled and engaged, because it, when it, they get it, it's, um, it's very exciting to them and that's what pulls them in. And they don't mind the accountability because it's rewarding to them to know that they're genuinely helping people. So I don't know, I think a lot of it is just number one, I think we need to do a better job of talking about this specialty and getting the word out. Do you have other thoughts about no, I, I just think that's important, the education um, and letting people know that this is a field, that mm -hmm. this is very rewarding. I just think that's what we have to do is just get the word out mm -hmm. and encourage generational diversity. So It's a niche and it's a little bit hard to explain to people. I mean, you don't see us on Gray's Anatomy checking. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I do. People get what it means to work in the OR. They get what it means to be an ER nurse, but I don't think they get what it means to be a device nurse or a device specialist. Right. So there's education that has to come before conversion. Right? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Well, Beth and Amy, thanks so much. This has been great. I yeah. really appreciate you guys taking the time. Thank so. you. Yeah, thank nice. you. This has been great. If you enjoy hearing conversations like this one, please subscribe to the Med Device Careers podcast, leave a review, and recommend to a friend to help spread the word. Are you searching for a new career, looking to hire the next Med Device star? want to grow your network, or are simply looking for a reliable source of MedDevice news and insights? MedDevice Careers is creating a platform for professional development and opportunity, cultivating growth through engaging content and conversations, and connecting MedDevice professionals across the globe. Go to MedDeviceCareers.com and create a profile today. You can also follow MedDevice Careers on all social platforms, and I can also be found on Twitter at PasteBeat or on LinkedIn, where I'll share what I'm reading and learning as I continue to grow my own career. Thanks again.